Kami. It's wonderful to have you here. Uh, let's begin with your African name and what sh- and what your artwork is about and about your practice. Yes. Um, hi, Paul. Thank you so much for having me here. I'm so excited to be here. And I very proudly will speak about my name. My name is a Nigerian name because I'm from Nigeria and specifically a Yoruba name. And it's Olukemi Lejadu. And Olukemi means God pampers me. Wow. <laughs> I That's, love it. Yeah. So it's a very powerful name. And whenever people are saying my name, they're affirming that reality. And I think it's true. So you have to teach me how to pronounce the name. So send you my blessing. Exactly. So yes, Olukemi Lejadu. And I'm an artist and a filmmaker and a DJ. And my practice is interdisciplinary. I actually trained as a philosopher. I studied philosophy at Stanford University um, as an undergraduate and also master's level, um, looking at African philosophy specifically um, for my thesis, um, for my master's thesis. And I didn't know that I was going to be an artist when I graduated. Um, But I feel like I've been an artist for a long time in hindsight. So since I was 16, for my 16th birthday, I received a video camera for my birthday present. And from that day, I started documenting my family, specifically my grandparents, um, because I was away from home. I was studying in the UK and I, up until leaving, Nigeria for the UK, I'd been very, very close to my grandparents. So I developed this anxiety (laughs) about not being around them or them potentially passing away whilst I was not there. So the camera for me was a way of holding on to their memories and also became a way to have conversations. I could put the camera in front of them and ask them about their life and what was it like living in Nigeria in the 80s and the 70s and who are they and what words of wisdom do they have for my potential children and their children, you know? To me, it was very magical having the camera. Let's start from and from from the very beginning. So you went to boarding school here, yes. right? At what age? I went to boarding school here at 13. At 13. So then why did you choose to go to Stanford? And when philosophy is not really, you know, you don't go to Stanford to study philosophy. You study technology, you study all other things. Why Stanford? Palm trees, that's why. Palm trees? Palm trees and the sun. <laughs> I would have expected that you would have gone to Soas, right? Palm trees and the sun. You know, I live in the UK now. I'm managing it, but oh, you I still feel like the, the palm most. <laughs> I feel most alive in the warmth in with the sunshine, and so I just knew that if I was in an environment where there was the sun and, you know, I saw pictures of people on their bikes. I thought that it looked amazing. Very simple answer. Absolutely. (laughs) But I also feel like even though I wasn't at a school that was dedicated to the humanities, you know, Mm. in the way that schools on the East Coast or schools in the UK are, I felt like it was really helpful almost to be in an environment different from from, Because you've been spending so many years. Exactly. And then let me ask you, what is... 
African philosophy system. I mean, that's what I read. African philosophy system. I'm trying to make make、uh, make out was it about. Explain that to me. Yeah. So I mean, there's this challenge. I think, and I feel like you must feel this too with the label. I feel like the label of African or the label of Chinese as somehow limiting, <laughs> potentially,、mm. and I think African philosophical systems just speaks to thought and what people are saying historically and contemporarily、um, about the way that we should live. Of from coming from people that are from the African continent, basically. So, I mean, there's a huge amount of cultures. I mean, within Nigeria alone, there are over thirty six and tribes, many、right? say more、um, tribes, ethnic groups, and. Within that, their own languages, and then within those, all their different ways of living and thinking about living.、Um, so there's an enormous amount of African philosophy. When you say philosophy, as such, is are there books about African philosophy, or or how do you research about African philosophy? Yes, herein lies the tension、um, that I found when I was doing my studies.、Mm. And that is because the Western world prioritizes sort of the written word、yes, as law.、Um, however, a lot of African thought has been contained orally and is passed、mm. down through generations through oral、um, tradition. And however, like our modes of researching, whether it be through history or philosophy, prioritize the written text as. The sort of foremost sort of source material, and so when you're looking at African philosophy, there's a tension, or there can be a tension sometimes because so much of it is oral. Yeah, absolutely.、Um, but then that draws me to probably the most the north star of my studies, and it's this woman once again, and a powerful woman <laughs> called Sophie Oluwole, and she is the first Nigerian woman to earn a PhD in philosophy. Wow! Yes, and she's a Yoruba woman. Oh, Yoruba again! Yes,、oh. absolutely. So she was kind of she provided the framework for my master's thesis, and she has this book that I stumbled upon、um, called Socrates and Orumila, and Orumila is the central figure in Yoruba philosophy and theology. And with her research, she found that. Orumila was a real person. Socrates, the father of Western philosophy, was also a real person. They lived at around the same time, and both of them never wrote anything down. So、mm. everything we know of Socrates is actually Socrates. secondhand. It's through Plato. Yeah. Everything we know of Orumila are in these verses that are passed down through generation to generation. So she made the very powerful argument that yes, we take. What Socrates has said as law, even though he never actually wrote anything down, it's still word of mouth in the same way that Yoruba philosophy and thought is. How interesting!、Yes. Yeah. So, what was your master? I mean, your、uh, your thesis for your、um, master? Yeah, my thesis was basically discussing on a structural level、um, how it's important for 
African philosophy students on the continent to study African philosophy because unfortunately, even in many of the university curriculums in Nigeria, it's predominantly Western philosophy that people are oh, taught. Really? Yes. Oh my God. <laughs> yes. And, um, and also for it to be included in um, syllabi within the Western world, across the world globally, like just making the argument that we shouldn't totally undermine it because of the oral, yeah, the nature of, of oral tradition, because many cultures also value oral tradition mm. as highly as the written word. And people can lie writing. They can also lie with, you know, speaking. Of course, <laughs> absolutely. So philosophy actually is a great basis for contemporary art. As, as an artist, this absolutely. is really a, the, the best b basis for it. So how did you integrate music and moving Images, moving images you just mentioned about how your your grandparents has has inspired you to take videos of them. So about music, you love music, and your I parents, love, your parents love music. I love music so much, and the genesis of my love for music really just started in my living room at home in Lagos with my dad. Both of us have trouble sleeping, so <laughs> he'll come back home from work. And we just stay up very late listening to music from everywhere. So we listen to music from the Caribbean. We listen to Lee Scratch Perry. Then we listen to Aretha Franklin. Then we listen to Fela Kuti. And so just All growing black up, music. So much black music. But we'd also listen to Mozart. And we listen to Yo Yo oh. Ma. And we listen to, so, like, it was a comprehensive global musical education that he gave me in the living room, basically. And we're both very obsessive. So we can listen to one song like eight times. Oh, I love it. <laughs> and he'll be like, okay, listen, do you see how the key changes here? Or do you see, okay, this is one version of the song and let's play like three different versions by three different artists and how did they interpret it? So it was really a deep but I'm surprised that Education. you didn't study music then. Um, I mean, I, l I play the piano and I also play the guitar, but I hadn't, I didn't have role models for artists. I didn't, even though I feel like I was surrounded by music and art, yeah. I didn't know many people, especially many women, people that looked like me, that had made a life of art, you know? Because um, my dad loves art, but he's yes. a lawyer. So I always felt, okay, art is something you love, but then you're serious. You have your serious life. And it took maybe um, when I was in university, I started DJing. And, I, and it was very, very interesting. That's when I first started thinking about the diaspora and the music as a way of connecting people because I had a unique background. Yes. I, was Nigerian, grew up in Nigeria, yeah. but then I lived in the UK. And so I developed this, you know, British accent. So I felt like when I was in the US, people saw me as British, even though I saw myself as Nigerian. And so I feel like my identity was 
you know, thrown into like a different vortex. That's what, that's what when we all live abroad and being sent abroad. Exactly. And when we go back home, we are like them, but exactly. it's not exactly like them. Moving to America was very interesting because I felt like I was interpreted differently from how I saw myself being this Nigerian girl that grew up in Nigeria, but then has this British accent. And so then being seen as British, I felt would kind of like sort of erase my Nigerian identity. identity. Um, but when I started DJing, it was almost like I could make a statement about who I was. I could weave all these different parts of my identity together so through the music I play. So I could play Nigerian music. I could then play like, you know, British mm. music, like the genres that have emerged here, like by black people. And then also like the American music that I grew up, African-American music I grew up listening to with my father and sort of make a statement about who I was. But you know that we all been sent away, you know, both colonies, yeah? And being very British dominated, we were all sent here. And then when you, when you go abroad, they think that you are not really Chinese, but I do look like Chinese. <laughs> and then when you go back home and then you find out a lot of your friends, they they went to America, they went to all different places. So it's, 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 I think you and you and I will have a similar experience being being in a, in a place, grew up in a place, born in a place where it's heavily influenced by British culture. One of the things I'd like to ask you, Pearl, is how have you dealt with um, misunderstandings or misinterpretations of Chinese art, particularly Chinese abstract? Because I know that um, maybe I see a parallel between my interest in African philosophy and it being dismissed and what the work that you have done and are doing. In I tell your you field. my story. Um, for a long time, I always felt that there was a missing link between what I read about the Chinese contemporary artists, especially I read in English, because my Chinese standard is only until 11 years old. So I always felt that there was a huge missing link until around, I tell you, around 2004, 2005. And one of the artists gave me an online, um, online uh, essay uh, you normally people would take an hour, less than an hour to finish it. it. Took me a week to finish it because my Chinese standard is really bad. And after that, I found out all the link was connected. So I was trying to find the person who write who wrote that and that essay, and that was Professor uh, Gao Ming Lu. So I said, okay, can I meet with this this person? So everybody came back and said, oh, unfortunately, he's returned to, to Pittsburgh because, because he was the um, professor at the Pittsburgh University. So I said, okay, fine. Can you make an appointment? So they made an appointment. I flew over to Pittsburgh. I met with him. And the funniest thing with Professor Garming Lu was, I sat down. He said, I don't curate for a gallery. I said, don't worry, my gallery just opened. I mean, at the time, I think 2005, yeah, just opened 2005. I'm not asking you to curate the show. He said, I only curate for and for music. I said, I'm not asking you to curate. I'm just coming to ask you for knowledge. He said, you flew all this way to come for knowledge. I said, yes, that's what I want because I, 
I couldn't understand what was going on. So we had a three hours conversation, a really long three hours conversation. Every now and then he said, I couldn't understand why you're flying there so long. Anyway, after that, I went to, I, I left for, for London. And at the time I spoke to um, the ICA director, at the time it was Philip Dord. So Philip said to me, I said, look, Philip, I got a problem is, if I find out that I couldn't understand it was all these missing link, and I think that I want to do something about it. I want to make sure that everybody, I mean, people would understand, because what happened is, all the catalog essay was written at the time. They never interview the artist. They only write in accordance from what they what they see when you talk to the artist was completely different. So the link was getting wider and wider. So he said to me, I have to set up a foundation and the foundation should be a closed door foundation led by all the leading Western museum people, curators, museum directors, and also from the Chinese. And then we have a closed door dialogue, a conversation. So that was set up in uh, 2008. And then I invited Kaming Lu to lead the Chinese side. And on the Western side, it was Nicholas Sarota. So in, and, and so they, we had a closed door uh, dialogue for, for three days. And it was great because it came out. And I think at the time in the West, the attitude was they were open-minded. They said, okay, let us try to understand with each another. So one of the professors from the Ohio University was saying that it was first time ever happened, but it was a closed door summit. So that was at the beginning of my foundation, China Art Foundation. So we would try, the whole, the whole mission about the China Art Foundation, which I created, is only to address the misunderstanding and also to create this dialogue between the East and West. And, to, and it's about Chinese art and using culture. This is another story. So go on. And, 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 then, you, and then when you came back, and when you went back to Nigeria, do you feel that? What do you feel after being educated in England and in America? Because I saw that you organized this, this symposium talking about post-colonial time, whether you are going to keep all the colonial art and all that. Tell me more about that. Yeah, so I feel like in a very interesting way, being away from Nigeria almost propelled me more towards understanding my culture and who I am, you know, and history, Nigerian history isn't on the Nigerian curriculum. So one can be Nigerian, had spent their whole life growing up in Nigeria, but still not be mm. intimately aware of one's culture. However, being abroad has maybe given me more access to research and like giving me the space to learn um, and be curious about um, the past and so that's been something that's been really I've been really passionate about like spreading awareness but also like deep knowledge and appreciation for our own cultural history and so in 2019 I organized a symposium with my friend Koejo Abudu who's a critic and a writer and curator and we wanted to um, have a conversation 
about the Brazilian um, sort of the links between Brazil and Nigeria. Mm. And this is something so many people um, don't necessarily realize. So there's a part of Lagos. I don't know if you went to Lagos Island, the marina. That's kind of like old Lagos. Oh, and I, I went to different islands, but I cannot remember <laughs> the name. But next time when I go, I'm going again. Yes. So I will go. You to, must what do is the tour. What is the called? Marina Island? Yes. Well, okay, it's called. I'll join a tour. Yeah, it's in the area called Marina, and it's um, basically there's so much architecture there. Um, that was built and designed by Brazilian returnees. So basically, and this is also in my family, my father, both his parents, um, come from people who had actually returned from Brazil. So people who had originally been taken as slaves to South America, but they or their parents had become free men and decided to return back to their homeland. But they don't even, they wouldn't even know yes, about, but, about the country at all. Yes, but they came back and with them, they brought back so many skills. So wow. because they had been, you know, building Brazil, they'd been the ones actually, you know, doing that. So many of them came back as art- architects or skilled tradesmen. So on my um, father's maternal side, um, his grandfather was called Domingo Martinez, and oh, on the other side, <laughs> and on his paternal side, they were the Ferreras. Yes. Ferreras. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> My God. Okay. Yeah. So it's like it's very interesting. Even though I am Nigerian, very much Nigerian, there's also this Brazilian heritage and then um, my mother is half Jamaican so I'm very connected to the diaspora and so anyway so my mom was actually she's an architect and she was in a building and she um, pointed out to me she just brought it up in conversation that the building had two different levels of floors and it's because one floor the I think the structure of the building was um interrupted by the Nigerian civil war. So when it was restarted, the wall, the floor wasn't level. And she was just talking about how there's so much history in our buildings and we don't talk about it enough. And so Koyejo and I decided to have a symposium, talk about the Brazilian architecture in Nigeria. And once you start a conversation about architecture, you're talking about history, you're talking about the slave trade, you're talking about migration, you're talking yeah. about preserv- cultural preservation because so many of these buildings are not being um, maintained. Um, and so we invited an artist, an architect, a photographer and a historian to Ooh. all do presentations um, and followed by like a Q&A and discussions. Oh. And it was free and open to the public. And we Very were overwhelmed. Oh my God. We were overwhelmed because um, it was totally f- packed. Let's talk about your film, Guardian Angel, which last night I was watching it. It was really interesting because there were all different threads of different music from and from different um, different genre. It was there. And then you were talking about your grandmother. You are addressing religion, Catholic with uh, Yoruba, religion, spirituality. 
And what amazes me is after I watch it, I was just saying to you, I was in Brazil, I was in Salvador, and it's just so connected. So, um, I think you can you talk more about how what what was your intention when you were making this movie? And this movie is funded by ICA, right? Yes, yes. So I received a grant from the ICA, and that was how it all came about. And the genesis of the film really started with my master's thesis when I was just thinking about the challenges of studying African philosophy. Even when I was studying it, I was coming up against the fact that with colonialism and with the missionaries when they came to Nigeria, um, they really demonized our traditional practices Absolutely. and traditional belief systems. And much of our philosophy shows up in our traditional belief systems. But it's actually almost very taboo to even say that you're interested in it because people will just be like, this is witchcraft, you know? Even in Nigeria? Yes, yes, within Nigeria, very much so, because so majority of you the population identify as Christian or Muslim. And whereas in, at least in cosmopolitan cities like Lagos, it's actually quite taboo to even have an interest no. in the traditional. Yes, colonialism really worked, <laughs> basically. And um, and I was very wow. frustrated because I was like, wow, I loved the ancient Greeks. I loved studying all the stories about the gods and, you know, you learn about Zeus and Aphrodite and all these, you know, crazy um, stories. But there was no it was almost like you couldn't look at traditional Yoruba religion, which was very similar in terms of having different Orishas, which yeah, because exactly. When, um, you can't look at them because it was seen as taboo. But the, I was like, you don't need to be, you don't need to, you know, be in the religion of the ancient Greece um, to appreciate the story of Zeus or Aphrodite. Yes, exactly. Or yeah, so even, even when I was in Brazil, I, I visited all these chapels, and then I was told that they have this these uh, religious sculpture, maybe a Virgin Mary or whatever, but it's not really representing Virgin Mary because they have the Yoruba gods inside the deity in, yes. in, in representing and how they were not allowed to worship their own religion. Absolutely. So are you saying that during the colon, uh, colonization, they have destroyed this whole culture? I mean, it's not possible to destroy a culture, but what you can do is you, people find covert ways um, to still practice them. So you see in Brazil, yes. it's almost like, they use Catholicism as like a cover to still, yeah. study, you know, so in Nigeria and you even see with a lot of the way that evangelical Christianity is practiced in Nigeria, it's very reminiscent of the way traditional um, Ifa spirituality mm. is expressed. So I think people might not be explicit about their or they might not even be aware. It might be a subconscious um, expression I, I of the really traditional. I was really interested in this Yoruba spirituality. Yes, I told yes. you already. I even went to did my cleaning or wearing all white. <laughs> white. <Yeah. laughs> was so into it. Yes, I it's so and, interesting. There's yeah. so much knowledge. There's, I mean, 
there's allegory, there's a lot to learn. Um, but but your movie itself was very interesting because you use your you use your grandmother, and then with your grandmother speaking, and then immediately you were dressing about Catholicity, and your mother, your grandmother was talking about. Uh, Catholic Catholicity, and then he was talking about spirituality, and I mean, being in her generation, isn't that really difficult? She was very forward thinking to compromise the both. Yes, she was and, very, very. And it was, you know, the thirty minutes movie, and with your music, it was splendid. I is is this the is this the first movie that that they are really talking about? African culture, in the way of using religion, spirituality as a philosophy uh, point of view. I mean, I wouldn't say it's the first movie. I think people, even within Nollywood, uh, have been dealing with a lot of these questions and issues. I actually yes. like Nollywood. Yes, yes, exactly. Because it's so dramatic <laughs> and so colorful. Everything exactly, and a lot of, I mean. People do address it um, in a number of ways, but I think for me, it was I was interested in film as a medium because I could write a philosophy paper. Nobody will read that. Sure, <laughs> or I could, but or I could, you know, do a lecture. But you know, that's also sort of inaccessible but film is a medium where people are able to come to it and feel put, able to you put your dj music yes integrating with your moving image yes to address your african culture but you're talking about religion and spirituality exactly i mean yes and actually really? <laughs> and actually i perform i do performances where the film is playing and i'll be djing the score live concurrently um, oh. So the score is actually something that's ever shifting and changing, and depending on which performance you come to, okay. it might be so different. Yeah. When you do a movie, you're at the background. You when you're DJing, you are in front of the crowd. So, explain to me how, from the behind to the front. How do you feel about DJing the music, especially you? I mean, you went to four different continents. I mean, how was your last experience with Tokyo feel feel like? Yes, um, yeah, DJing in Tokyo was great. I didn't show Guardian Angel there. I just played music, but I was really. Um, just amazed by the appreciation for African music. Afrobeats. Yes. I learned Afrobeats the last last trip. Yes, I went to I was invited to a party like a quite like an underground wow. party and when we got in there it was totally Afrobeats. And <gasps> me and my friends are the only black people there. What? <laughs> and everybody was dancing. Yes. And and I really 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 um was just moved by music's ability to get connect to people, people. Connect people. Yes, yes. In a way that other ways of communicating find difficult. Music is almost its own language in a sense that people can feel an emotional resonance. So even if someone watches my film, and that's why the music was so important for Guardian Angel, even if somebody watches my film and doesn't quite 
still mulling over what it's trying to say. The music is telling a story. But it's very clear yes. what you were saying. <laughs> you were taking, you know, some old picture and then and then questioning. Yes. Yes. I mean yes, those yes, questions yes. about African spirituality being lost and then religious because Catholicity is very strong. You yes, speak yes, yes. but I really like seeing your your next movie you know the clipping of sisters it seems that you like very strong women i do <laughs> you like strong women to be the main topic of your of your of your movies yes i do so i do what are you trying to talk about about in sisters yeah so um this is my next project called sister sister and it's a documentary about the lejadu sisters who are my aunts and they were musical twin sisters singing sensation in Nigeria from the 70s they were the first female band um cousins of Fela Kuti mm. um television regulars they appeared on a saturday on wow. a show on television every saturday um during that period and they were freedom fighters outspoken they were not afraid to speak out against the government even against the military government absolutely and they spoke up about women's treatment in the music industry they were very very radical um they are um very radical woman um auntie kende is late but auntie taiwo is still alive and she lives in new york and we're very close so um it's getting to know them it became important for me in the same way that it was for my grandparents to preserve their to story celebrate them. to celebrate them exactly and also the power of people being able to see people like themselves i think it does a huge thing for the human psyche just to even see okay let me ask you i mean um do you have gender equality in in, in nigeria is the I mean, woman a man of equality because your mother is an architect your father is a lawyer um uh, and and your father told me she and he grew up in france so obviously he doesn't have these these baggages of being you know uh, you know this african you know male chauvinistic i think man. everybody is confused i think everyone confused. is confused yes because there's so many things that people think of as african or as nigerian that are actually brought from colonialism so in guardian angel oh. for example we talk about um there's that clip of the dutch couple the missionaries yes, yes. and they're talking about how um you know they're teaching people to only have one wife yes yes they do talking about yes about exactly mon- uh, monogamy versus polygamy yeah, polygamy and the interviewer asked them is this actually something in the bible or is this just a european thing european and you know they stumble they're of not course, able to answer the, the question because the old testament in the old testament all the kings has plenty of wives and women exactly yeah. <laughs> exactly of course but unfortunately and that also comes with the lack of teaching history so many people have absorbed the colonial values and think of them as african culture so without actually thinking about so many people have the like have imbued traditional ideas of the roles or european traditional ideas of the role of women and men so are you telling me that before colonialism you have gender equality between african men and women well i mean i think it's complicated 
It's complicated, but it's, it was not like man. I mean, African man is very male chauvinistic. I mean, it's it's complicated. I mean, there's a philosopher or a, and a sociologist called Oyeronke Oyewumi. Yeah. And she also, I looked at her for my master's thesis and she talks about the role of women. She called, her book is called The Invention of Women. And it looks at the role of women and men in Yoruba society, pre-colonialism. Yeah. And she makes the argument um, that actually the most salient way of sort of discerning um, or distinguishing people in Western society is gender, right? So yeah, men and yeah. women. But in Yoruba society, it was actually age as opposed to man or woman. And that she uses the way our language is um, spoken as sort of proof for this. So there's actually no, we don't have gendered language in Yoruba. So if oh, we don't you'll have say in Chinese. older sibling or younger sibling as opposed to brother or sister, you know, oh, wow. um, and so she makes that argument. Other thinkers and philosophers have pushed back. Um, and so it's an ongoing dialogue. But what's clear is that the way in which gender played out in Yoruba society was not the same as in European society. So that's what I can say conclusively. But it's definitely a conversation to say. And I think equality is also a complicated concept right of course of and, course equality and who, who can have equality ex <laughs> exactly i mean you know. but, it's a, but it's an ideal way of yes. uh, and of addressing it was different fairness, exactly i've never i never thought of myself as a woman that i would never work or yeah. that um, certain opportunities would but not was, be open to me but i was also told that in um, African tribes, you are, the woman high priestess is the one who rules everything. Yes. Who's I mean, the one who controls everything. Yes. I mean, uh, the various different ethnic groups that have their own orientations and um, configurations of how women would operate within the society. And it was never just a default that you can't look at an African society or because ethnic group and be really, like, men are going to be the ones ruling there. Are many different co configurations. I was deeply interested when I was told by the the German lady, Susan Wenger. Wenger. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And how, and how she lead the whole tribes being a German, a white German and being the highest priestess and teach and taught all these, all these locals who are illiterate to become well-known artists yes uh, yeah absolutely i mean i think that's the thing it's always more complicated than we yeah. might think it's always more nuanced than we might think they're always the dynamics of the west don't always play out it's in the same way on white. the african yeah. continent exactly like for a german woman to occupy that space as a yoruba woman yeah. woman many people see her as a Yoruba woman. You know, that's something that would disrupt Western conceptions completely, of completely. racial relations, yeah. you know? Um, so I think that's really my goal and the push of my artistic practice, what? which is for people to complicate their ideas and understandings of our society, our culture. You won an award to go to Chicago to DJ and to work with Fiesta Gate. I mean, the question I have for you is, are you, is Fiesta Gate doing performance art with your music as the, and as the background? And also, can you explain to the audience, who is Fiesta Gate? Yes, yeah, so um, 
I was one of the recipients of the Villa Albertine grant, which is sort of um, a residency um, supported by the French government. And so, yes, I was one of a handful of African artists selected this year. So I'm super excited wow. for it. And supported, I'll be supported by Marianne Ibrahim Gallery, mm. um, who also have a space in Chicago. And yes, I will be researching the links between West African traditional music and Chicago house music. And Theaster Gates is the custodian of an incredible archive, the Frankie Knuckles record collection. Wow, yes. really? And so what I'll be doing is actually going into that archive. Um, very grateful to him for preserving it um, and sort of looking through the archives um, to see the sonic resonances between the continent and yeah, and yeah, the, the Americas. Yes. Wow. And I think once again, it's part of just my general sort of impetus and pull towards looking at the links between the diaspora across the Atlantic. Please explain who is Fiesta Gates, because I think most of the our audience who is not in the art world would not know who is Fiesta Gates. Yes, Fiesta Gates is an incredible um, artist. He's from Chicago and he is a musician, um, an architect of sorts, researcher, sculptor, um, and he's really into music and black music. Um, last year, he he did the pavilion at the Serpentine. Yeah. And there was like a beautiful performance there, the Black Monks performance. He sort of runs and orchestrates a choir that speak to sort of the history of black people in the States. Um, and but he's only interested in American, African, I mean, African-American, or is he still interested in, in, in the African diaspora? I mean, I think if you're interested in the African-American story, by default, you're interested in the African true, diaspora. True, true. Because, yeah, <laughs> exactly. But um, yeah, he, he's deeply interested in the African-American experience. And so I think being able to um, engage with his archive and hopefully with him will just really enrich Great. I want my to research see the experience. Yes. That. Yeah, I'm really excited about it. I actually did... Um, so what I say is like a sketch, like my equivalent of a sketch is like a DJ set <laughs> and film performance. And I recently did that in Paris um, in an opera house. Actually, it had 360 screens. Ooh. So I edited a video that was played um, on the screen, sort of looking at the similarities between the dance styles in traditional um, West African dance cultures and Chicago house dance Whoa. music. There are actually a lot of really interesting parallels. So like weaving that footage together wow. was really fun. And I did a DJ set, like weaving the music together also at the same time. Bravo. Thank you. So yeah, that was my little sketch <laughs> towards the research that right. I'll be doing. Yes. but And Pearl, I'm also very interested to ask you, how do you feel like 
Chinese and African people can begin to have a dialogue between themselves and what do you think? You know, China and Africa has very long relationship. In 1949, when China becomes communist and America decided that they would embargo China. So all the Western countries did not do any trading with China. China, only trading partners was the African countries. So at the time, when you are African, you come to China, they give you a five-star hotel. If you're white coming to China, you live, you go to bread and breakfast. <laughs> it was quite funny. It's only 1973 when Nixon arrived China and then they lived up the embargo. I think China only start trading and having the, the, I mean, trading with West is only starting with the late 1970s after Mao Zedong passed away in 1976. So from from end of 70s, um, after Mao Zedong passed away, then they start trading really a lot with the West. Then China again in 2000 reopened the African-Chinese relationship. So you see there is a lot of Chinese presence in Africa. So they have a lot of investment in, in, in Africa. But but I was told and I read news about it, about there were Africans who doesn't like Chinese, because even if they build infrastructures, hospital and all that, they were bringing their Chinese workers rather than some using the African workers. So on the Chinese side, the explanation to me was that language, language barrier and works ethics, because Chinese will work 24 hours a day under very hot climate, and they will only go, I mean, only ask for holidays. And that working ethics you can't find in other nationalities. So I hope that with that, um, the Chinese and Africans will have a better understanding. But I'm sure that culturally, I think, you know, when you keep, get deeper, after trading, you want to learn about the absolutely. culture. So that's a great platform for the cultural exchanges. Yes, absolutely. And actually, this time during the Shanghai Art Fair, we are going to introduce some African artists. Mm. Actually, we did already last year in Baba Jindi. And then um, we are going to open his show in March in, um, in Shanghai. Oh, wow. So it will be quite... quite Quite, I, I think it would be refreshing. Yes. And there are so many different countries in Africa, so I need to visit. Yeah, you need to visit I them can, all. Yeah, <laughs> before I can really understand. I think, and you know, the few days I spend in Lagos, I only scrape the very, very superficial, I mean, elements about um, Africa. But now I have employed an African curator. So hopefully I'll learn... Little More. by little, because I was told by Nigeria, he said Nigeria is very complicated. It's There's very, so many tribes. I mean, you, you won't know at all. So because, I mean, each tribe has a different culture. Distinct. Distinct. Yes. So yes. just in Nigeria, exactly. <laughs> you can spend your whole life. Yeah, you'll spend yeah. your whole life. So I'm figuring meeting it out. you, young African ladies and professionals. I'm hoping that you will teach me. So what is your next move? I mean, besides after making your sister and sis uh, sister, sister, 
Um, I think my next move, I want to, I've been writing more and I'd like to publish more of my writing to sort of, I see my um, films and music as a gateway for people to research um, and educate themselves about the continent and the diaspora. So getting more of my work as a writer published is something that's in the works. And, you know, the amazing thing is I feel like stories to tell just sort of appear to me. So as much as I can plan, um, they I know that it will just come and unfold. So, like last last time I was in Lagos, um, one of the one of my grandmother's friends had heard about my film and so invited me to film him. And so there's a community of old people in Lagos who are desperate for me to document their stories. Wow. Yes. That's great. <laughs> so there's a Congratulations. Lot, there's a lot, yeah. I think that's that is fantastic. Thank you so much. Kami. Thank you so Thank much, Paul. I really appreciate speaking with you. Yes. Love um, meeting you. Yes. <laughs> <Thank> you. <laughs>